Hey everybody and welcome to the Dark Cast. This is DCI number 56 and I'm your host Jonathan Miley. Well, I just want to say happy 4th of July to everybody out there. Of course, I'm talking about the day that Will Smith saved us from the aliens and I'm glad that we celebrate that every single year. Uh, and also, just, just a side note, this is episode number 56, and 56, 5 plus 6, is 11, which is the same number that you get if you add 4 and 7, which is, is the date of the 4th of July. Coincidence? I don't think so, but in all seriousness, I uh, hope you had a great 4th of July. In this interview, Brian and I are talking to Pat Kemp of Spry Fox. Uh, it's a studio that's making a game called The Road Not Taken, and if that sounds familiar, it is the title of a Robert Frost poem. You should go read it. Robert Frost is awesome. Anyway, this is not a poem. This is a grid-based puzzle roguelike Thing that has one of the most nuts trailers of all time and it will be in the show notes um, anyway as always you can find out more information about the game in the show notes to this episode including said crazy trailer if you want to follow us on twitter you can find us at darkstation underscore com if you want to subscribe to the podcast we're the dark cast we're on itunes while you're there give us a review and let us know what you think of the show and finally if you want to send us an email you can do that at podcast at darkstation dot Calm. Now, thank you for listening, and on with the show. today how are you doing doing great thanks for having me yeah glad to have you uh, i know i already asked you how you were doing once but you know that was before the podcast started so this is the the real answer so if you want to change it you can uh, okay. but you've already answered so you probably shouldn't anyway um it's been a it's been a long day so this might <laughs> this may be a weird podcast <laughs> before we get started talking about the game can you talk a little bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do at Spry Fox. Sure, yeah. So my name is uh, Pat Kemp. Uh, I live in Seattle, and uh, I'm a game designer for Spry Fox. Very cool. So what what encapsulates the, the title of game designer? Um, because I think programmers pretty, you know, you, you, you program things, audio, you work with audio. What, what do you do as a game designer? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I So at SpryFox, we usually work on pretty small teams, so like a single designer per project. Um, so at our company, you know, a designer is typically whoever comes up with the game concept and uh, whoever sort of uh, makes like day-to-day decisions about how, how, uh, how things should work in the game, um, you know, making sure everything, Things always fun, iterating on it, and uh, things like that. You know, it could be anything from balancing units or, uh, uh, you know, setting prices for objects in the virtual store or, um, you know, fine-tuning the physics of a player avatar. Um, you know, in the industry at large, game designers are usually kind of specialized, and one designer could do totally different stuff than another designer. But um, like I said, Sprite Fox, we don't typically only have one, maybe two designers on a project, so you typically do everything. Okay, so do you generally have several uh, projects going at one time? Yeah, that's pretty. That's usually the way it goes. Um, sometimes we will kind of all focus in on a single project to get something done. Uh, but not taken being a uh, a great example of that in recent memory. Uh, but yeah, typically I'm I'm on two to three projects at any given time. Okay, very cool. So you're you're not just the one uh, designer on uh, say the road not taken, but you're also the one designer on uh, a couple of other things that we might not know about right now. Yeah, that's true. Very cool. Very cool. Sounds busy. (laughs) (laughs) It is, yeah. It is busy, but in a good way. Very good. Uh, Now, did you go to um, college, university to to study game design, or have you been in the the industry for a while now? Kind of what's your, your background leading up to Spry Fox? 
Yeah, so uh, I've got, worked in the game industry for about eight years, um, and I did go to university for uh, digital media, um, which is a kind of a computer graphics um, uh, bachelor program. Uh, my idea was I was going to uh, work in 3D animation, and like I wanted to work at a company like Pixar or something. Um, and then they started adding like game correct uh, curriculum to the to the courses, and I took those, and I was like, I want to make games instead. And so I moved out here to Seattle. And I, most of my career, I've been working as a, a game artist. You know, sometimes 3D art, sometimes 2D or or uh, UI design. Um, and then only recently, when I, I started Sprite Fox, I I switched from artist to game designer. Uh, what that sounds like a, a pretty uh, serious switch, and I, I've heard of a lot of people going from from art to, to design, or from you know level design to kind of overall game design, programming to design, all that kind of stuff. What was it like making that transition from kind of working on one aspect of the game to working on all aspects of the game? Um, for me personally, um, it was something I've been working towards for several years. I, you know, so professionally I was working as an artist, but, but, um, I, I do a lot of hobbyist, uh, game development as well. I've been making games, you know, for fun, um, since high school. Uh, um, and design was always something I really loved and, and, you know, uh, considered probably the most fun part of making games. Um, but you know, all my, I, all my professional work was art. Um, so it was a, uh, it was something I was working towards and, you know, I was working in larger companies before Sprite Box and kind of like asking to participate in design discussions and, uh, sitting in on meetings and things like that. Um, but you know, in a larger company, it's typically hard to, to kind of jump disciplines like that because you've when you get hired, you have a job title, people sort of compartmentalize you as that. And, um, uh, you know, there's kind of some inertia. Um, but then uh, I, I got hired at Sprite Fox because, you know, Daniel Cook, who's our uh, chief creative design, uh, chief creative director and game designer on most of our projects. Um, he's a friend of mine and, and he'd been uh, sort of mentoring me for years and, and seeing my personal projects as I worked on them. And uh, when he needed some extra help, with game design and sprite box, he thought of me and, and offered me a job. So, uh, what was going to be probably a slow, laborious, bureaucratic transition became a very abrupt and awesome transition where all of a sudden I was a game designer. Oh, those are the uh, best so kind when there's just no red tape. Yeah. <laughs> you can I mean, I had to bring quit a job. job. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had to quit a job and, and start a new one. But other than that, it was a pretty, it was a pretty overnight transition. So, Short answer, I got really lucky and, and just kind of jumped on jumped on that opportunity. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Now, how many people do you have at, at Spryfox? Uh, we have 11, 11 full-time employees. Um, we also partner and co-develop uh, with some other studios on some of our games. Uh, so I think if you counted all the people total who worked on our games, it would be more like 15 or 20. Uh, okay. Um, depending on any given point of time, but 11 full-time employees. Very cool. Uh, so you've been in the game industry for eight years, but how long has SpyFox actually been around? Uh, I think it's, gosh, it's, I want to say four, four and a half now. Okay. I might have that wrong, but I, I, that's what it, that, that sounds right. I, I believe you. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So generous there, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's I, I try to give all of our interviewees the benefit of the doubt. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate it. So, uh, the road not taken is uh, the the new game that you guys are coming out with. Uh, it is a puzzle, block moving ranger saving kids, crazy game with an even crazier trailer. So before we get to the the game itself, yeah, what was the inspiration behind that trailer? Because that was kind of amazing. <laughs> and also, I'm not really sure how it fits with the game. <laughs> um, it totally doesn't. Um, I guess, I guess that's sort of the joke we we're going for. Um, but um, yeah, I mean they're inspired from the pretty much the 80s and 90s commercials for like NES and. Stuff. 
stuff. Um, I think, you know, a couple months ago, someone, we were passing around YouTube links of those old videos. I think there was one particular for The Legend of Zelda, uh, which was just, like, hilarious, you know, like, the, the two kids, and one of them's, like, dressed like a stereotypical nerd, and the other one's, like, dressed like a stereotypical cool kid, and the nerdy kid is showing him uh, uh, Legend of Zelda, and the guy kid's like, whoa, and he keeps cutting back and forth to put into the game, and it's just really over the top and cheesy, um, and we were just cracking up about that. And then someone said, at all, we should totally do that for Road Not Taken, um, particularly because Road Not Taken uh, is such a kind of a somber and, and, uh, and deep game and, like, has really shares nothing with the kind of uh, vibe of those commercials. And we just thought, well, you know, let's try doing something kind of different and hope it generates attention just, just because of how crazy it is, but also, you know, funny and everything. Um, so I think that was pretty much the thought process. And then we, our, um, our artist, the same artist who did all the art for, uh, we're not taken, Brent Kobayashi, uh, whipped up that trailer and sent us all a link and we all, we all stopped laughing. We're all like, okay, cool. I think we're going to do that. <laughs> we are putting uh, this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we tweaked it a little and, and then, uh, it, it turned into what you, what you saw. So how long after Road Not Taken releases do we see the Road Not Taken 90s DLC? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't even think about that, but you know, we, <laughs> we are talking about, you know, we are in, in the planning phases for DLC right now, and, and uh, I might have to float that as a possibility in the Skype chat. Yeah, just see, you know, like, hey, you did, you know, you can even advertise it like you didn't think it would happen, but we're back, and then you know that dude comes back. That's like we're yeah, doing this you can rest these stereotypical '90s kids instead of just normal kids. Yep. <laughs> so you guys, awesome. you guys tend to have a um, like looking through the the list of games that Spry Fox has kind of done. Um, you know, some of them are real cute. Um, some of them, like Steam Birds, was kind of surprising. I I, I didn't expect that. Um, kind of from you, and then there was, like, High Grounds where it kind of almost took, like, a, a Zelda-ish type feel to it with the the way kind of everything looked. Um, yeah. Is is it mean, is it kind of, is it the idea that kind of the style and art grows from, or is it kind of the art that gives that gives life to, to the ideas you guys have? Um, it, it's typically idea first, and then we, we, we apply the art as a, as a, a theming to sort of convey the idea. Um, so, so, uh, typically our games start as, uh, prototypes of like, uh, you know, anonymous colored squares moving around kind of thing and, and all this, you know, no art to speak of, no theming to speak of. And we, we play with it. And once that's fun, then, and we decide to go ahead with it, then we start talking about like, what would this, what, what should these colored squares actually be should they be little foxes or bears or steambirds or you know steampunk planes or whatever um so that's that's it's typically uh the game design comes first you know just the systems and then we add the, the theming on top um the games you mentioned steambirds and um and high grounds are both examples of us co-developing with uh other developers so there was um not just spry fox art and ideas in the mix for those. Um, so maybe that, that might explain some, why it felt a little, uh, uh, why they might have stuck out a little from our portfolio. Um, so like, yeah, so uh, just between like Triple Town and, you know, like, like Panda Poet, like there's a very, there's a very kind of puzzly yet cute kind of design concept. And that was something that I picked up on while watching the, the actual Road Not Taken teasers. And then those yeah. other games kind of popped out and I was like, wow, these are departures. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, a part of that is like, um, we really like, uh, making interesting and different games, um, design wise. So, uh, you know, an, an, another one of those games that would, would, uh, probably, um, be added to your list of, of, well, is that a Spy Fox game? Uh, would be Realm of the Mad, Mad God. I don't know if you checked that one out. Um, it's not, it, it's, it's one we co-developed for a while and then we, we sort of like, uh, 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 the game was sold and then we sort of, you know, were hands off at that point. Um, but that was really, really drastically different than the rest of our games. You know, it was like eight, eight bit retro, uh, look and feel with, with open source graphics. And it was a, uh, 
uh, Bullet Hell MMO with Permadeath. Um, wow. It's an awesome game. It's worth checking out. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I think it's Bright Fox, whether it's, it's a game that we design internally totally and like, you know, we originate design or we come across a partner with a, a novel design. Uh, we sort of just keep an open mind for like different types of games and, and we're not afraid to, you know, try something that's out of our, uh, our, our experience. Um, so those, those games are all sort of examples of us being like, Hey, yeah, we haven't made a, a bullet hell MMO before. Why don't we try that? Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I guess that's sort of our approach to uh, portfolio management for better or for worse. Keeps things diverse and that's something that the industry definitely needs. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's fun for us to work on, you know, it's, it's really fun to be, to work on different types of games and it's great that we're able to do that. Uh, even with such a small company. So uh, I've watched several trailers of The Road Not Taken, and I'm not entirely sure that I've wrapped my head around what the game actually is in, in terms of kind of moment-to-moment gameplay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm sure you've gathered that it's a puzzle game set on the grid, um, and you have a little avatar hard that you move around and um it's effectively turn-based so you know all the other objects in the world only move when you move um so if you wanted to stare and look at the screen and plan out your whole strategy you can do that there's no real real time element to it um and you have this one ability you know you move around with directional keys and you have one action button that basically um levitates or picks up um objects in the four uh, orthogonal uh, squares to your character um, and then you can move around with them and then you can hit the action button again to then throw them away from yourself um, and so uh, you use that ability to, to move objects around at the very you know that's the most basic interaction of the game um, but from there you know you're you're using that ability to arrange objects to group them together to unlock like um, like unlock a door or like it a door to get to the next room of the, the forest might, um, or next screen of the forest might, might say it requires three pine trees, um, meaning you need to get three pine trees adjacent to each other on that screen. So you do that and the door opens. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, the puzzles get more complex. Um, there's, there's even a crafting system where, you know, it's, you, you combine objects by putting them adjacent to each other and that, uh, and they, they, they mutate into a new object. Um, and all the objects have, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of objects and they all have, uh, unique behaviors or properties. So like a, uh, like an angry ghost might chase your player around and, and if, and if he, uh, uh, manages to get you, saps a bunch of energy from you, uh, which is bad. Um, and a bu- cute bunny might run away, but if you can manage to catch him, you know, it, it gives you a resource. Um, and there's all these different, you know, Interactions that that um, combine in interesting ways, um, like trying to chase a bunny with an angry ghost chasing you, for example, um, and uh, and that really makes up the bulk of the gameplay is is uh, coming into the, the screens and and looking at what's laid out because it's always random. You're, you don't really know what you're going to expect, and and trying to manipulate the objects in space uh, to your advantage. So the uh, the crafting and um, kind of gathering of elements does that carry over from screen to screen, or do the things that you craft kind of generally be used on the the grid that you're currently on? Yeah, so you can um, you can carry stuff from screen to screen. Um, so I, I guess I should back up and say you know when you enter you enter the forest and the forest is procedurally generated, and so the gener- you know the forest is generally made up of uh, I think like five to seven um, screens, you know, sort of like, you know, screens in one of the old school Zeldas or something. So you go from one door to the next screen to screen. And um, within within a single forest, you can carry objects from screen to screen, no problem. Um, and in fact, in some of the later levels, it's it's required. And, you know, you, you'll come up to a gate and it says it requires six rocks and there's two rocks in the room. And you're like, oh. Have to well, go look at, yeah, <laughs> go to the other screens and find the other rocks and consolidate them and things. Um, 
So does and, the, does, do yeah, absolutely. pop in the previous screens, or is that once you've solved kind of that screen, you're good to go, you can go back and visit to, to kind of get more stuff? No, they don't re-pop. So um, if there's a monster or something and you throw him out of the room, then he'll no longer be in that room, but he will be in the room. <laughs> room. <laughs> okay. Um, so they're, they're, they're persistent. And um, and there's kind of like a cohesiveness to it. Um, we do a couple things where uh, you know objects are are never or I should say rarely actually destroyed. Even though there are objects that ostensibly destroy things, like you can have there's a crow object you can throw it at something and the crow will carry it away and just get it out of your hair, which is great. But what it actually does is teleports it somewhere else on the map. And that's how we sort of that's how we sort of make the spatial puzzles. Um, uh, not get broken in the procedural generation. Okay. So if you if you accidentally destroy one of the six rocks, you won't be screwed because you can't combine six rocks anymore. Um, you just have to then go look where that six rock got teleported to. Um, oh, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> is there is there is, uh, does it make it clear that it was teleported, or is that something where you know you just kind of put together? It's like oh, I need six rocks. It's like oh man, I gotta go find this one now. Or when you see it teleport, you're like I should probably hold on to these other ones. Yeah, I mean, so it, it, it's funny. The the crow object I was talking about was originally themed as a bomb, and we were, we would you throw it an object and it would blow up the object, and we were like, awesome. Um, but then you know players were confused when we were actually teleporting them, and they would assume that the, the rock was gone, right? Um, so then we switched it to a crow, which picks it up and lifts, you know, kind of flies off. And then when you run into that rock later, you're not like you're like, oh, that's where the crow left the rock. Cool, and now I can bring it back. And, and and, and and I think we kind of get the player into that state of mind early on because, you know, even even just with the base procedural generation before the player is screwed with anything, um, there are often uh, objects that you need in adjacent rooms rather than the room you're in. So you might walk in and it says, you know, it needs the six rocks and you have one of the six rocks in an adjacent room and, and make the player go looking for it. So you kind of get in that mindset early on of, of you know, searching rooms for what you need. Very cool. So you said that the uh, the whole game is procedurally generated. So every time you play it, uh, it's, the rooms are going to be different. They're going to be laid out different. Your kind of what you need to craft is going is going to change. Yep. Yeah. So so it's, uh, so it's also a roguelike, which that's <laughs> generally kind of associated with like you know RPGs and more action oriented games. How does how does puzzle and roguelike kind of marry together? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, um, I, I would say they marry together well. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, it's not something you've typically seen very much of, which is kind of why we, we got really excited about this project. Um, and the trick is really, you know, making interesting puzzles um, that aren't, you know, broken and... Um, aren't kind of boring. You know, that, that's that's always a trick with procedural generation. On one hand, if you, you know, it's nice because as a developer, we don't have to handcraft, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of different little puzzles. We can let this algorithm spit them out and, and, and effectively give us infinite content. Um, on the other hand, if you don't write it well, you know, you can produce a bunch of really samey, crappy content. Um, so it's all about, it's, it all hinges on whether or not you can make an algorithm that makes interesting content. Um, and so for us, you know, the, the sort of part of the procedural generation, uh, puzzles are the lock and key mechanic, which I've been sort of talking around, um, where, you know, there's a gate to get to the next room that requires X number of an object adjacent. And, and then we, so we'll spawn a door. We'll say this door requires six rocks to belabor the example more, and then we place six rocks, some of which might be in that screen, others might be in adjacent ones, and then we know, because we're not destroying the rocks, that there are six rocks in the level for the player to bring together, and then they can, they'll get through the puzzle, so the puzzle works. Um, and then beyond that, you know, the thing that makes it fun is just the the, combina- the different combinations of the weird objects, you know, maybe, maybe collecting the six rocks the first time is kind of fun, but then after... For a little while, you're like, okay, I'm carrying rocks. This is not this is not a great game. But you know, the second you put, um, you know, like a, a, a spider or a or a, a angry raccoon in that same room, and you're trying to arrange rocks while raccoons bite in your face, it's like all of a sudden this is, becomes interesting. 
Um, and so it's really all the little the combinations of the different behaviors that that make the puzzles feel unique. Um, and and I say every level is procedurally generated, but we actually have um, some uh, custom rooms. Um, the rooms are screens. We just we call them rooms for development purposes. But um, there's about 40 or so handcrafted ones that that we've made um, for various purposes. Sometimes we use them as like set pieces, like a like a something a little atmospheric, like a a, a pretty little graveyard or something, or a boss battle where you know the whole level's laid out in a special way for you to have to fight this giant spider or whatever. Um, and some of them are for teaching purposes. So there might be a a custom room that we crafted to teach the player how to craft uh, honey combs. Um, and so we, we dot those in and kind of mix them in with the randomly generated stuff. But even those, you know, in any given playthrough of the game, you'll probably only see a small fraction of those just mixed in with the, the rest of the procedurally generated screens. Um, so there's a little bit of repeating content, but it's, you know, it's for an important reason and it doesn't get, it doesn't get tiresome or anything. So. So I love to take deep dives into fiction that really doesn't need deep dives. Um, what kind of a ranger signs up for this job in this weird forest with these gates that require rocks? <laughs> what is he doing in there, and what kind of a special person did you have to find to volunteer for that? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, uh, the, the that is not something that does not require a deep dive in this game. That is something this game dives into. <laughs> oh, good, good, uh, good. Excellent. We take that question seriously. Um, in this game, uh, but the identity of the ranger and 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 their place in the the village um, and and their why they're doing this job is actually kind of part of the story, uh, which is you know slowly revealed in bits and pieces and and has some interpretation left up to the player. It's not like a very in your face narrative, uh, but um, yeah, yeah, who the, you know that's that's a big part of it, and um, uh, I'm not going to spell it out for you because it's that would ruin the mystery um but let's just say um the the ranger does what they do um because um uh, uh because of they're haunted by something in their past okay all right all right so they're okay i gotcha so they're they're pushed forward by their own particular agenda not necessarily like guild politics or something he didn't draw yeah. the he didn't draw the short straw to go into this weird forest to go that rescue kids or anything. Yeah. All right. So he's there because he wants to be excellent. That's good. okay. Well, maybe not wants to be, but needs to be. It needs has to, to be, be. Has to be. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Feels like he needs to be. Yeah, and and really it ties into kind of the larger theme of the game. Um, you know, obviously we're, you know, the game's called Road Not Taken, which is a you know a reference to the Robert. The Frost poem, and um, a big part of the theme of the game is is the idea of uh, living, you know, living a path, a certain path through life that uh, diverges from sort of the the expected path, like what you know, you know, there's maybe society gives you this this script for what life should look like, uh, what uh, a life should look like. You know, you go to school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids. Um, and this game is sort of a meditation on what happens when one of those things, uh, doesn't work out and you end up, uh, you know, off that script and, and, um, you know, looking back at that life, is it, is it a regret? Are you, are you glad you went the way you went? And, and, um, you know, we found that the, the roguelike, you know, uh, sort of life cycle where you, you, you play and then you die and then you play and you die and you you kind of iterate over and over uh, uh, works pretty well to explore that theme and, and sort of um, you get multiple cracks at, at, at living the best life so to speak um, and so you know the the, the job of the ranger uh, is their career and that's one of those big big chunks in that that script of life right is what you do what what you give back to a society <clears throat> that you live in um, so. Um, you know, that's that's sort of what that's about. So how how are you guys going about kind of um, telling this 
uh, more serious, kind of down-to-earth, very personal style of, of story. Obviously, you don't want to go too far into the story, spoilers and things like that, but how are you kind of addressing telling a, a story in this? Are, are we going to have cutscenes? What what kind of conveys what's happening? Yeah, so we have we have a couple cutscenes. Um, they're not a whole lot, and, and you really only see each one maybe once twice um but most of most of the story comes across in the uh in the writing um so when you when you encounter objects and you you bump in into them and interact with them you'll see like a little blurb or a descriptive text and um, each object has you know dozens of lines of, of of text that you can you can read and stuff and or not read if you want to i mean you can you can not read everything and, and do pretty okay with the game um but you know, we use those little narrative blurbs to kind of hint at, at the kind of greater world. Um, so it's not really a story told in like a, a linear narrative sense, like this happened and that happened. Uh, but you get, you know, bits and pieces. You might, you know, talk to an NPC or, or bump a statue and it'll say something or reference to something else and, and, make something click and you're like, oh, oh, that's what they're talking about when the kids go pluck the berries. And, and, and slowly but surely you sort of get these little bits and pieces of narrative. And through the multiple playthroughs, um, you get like a, a larger sense of the world. Um, so we never really tell you a, a big, you know, really clear beginning to end story, but we sort of let you accumulate bits and pieces and form a picture in your head, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is that and info itself kind of uh, procedurally generated? I mean, as far as where it falls. So, um, you know, once you guys set it up, is that because the first thing that comes to mind is kind of gone home, where no matter which way you go in that house, you're always going to experience the story um, in the manner that they want to tell you. So even if you you go to a different place, the audio log you get is always going to be the, in the same order that it was designed for you to hear. Um, it's when you play this, are you ever going to run into uh, like information again? that you previously found, or is that something that's that's kind of designed to roll out at you in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, Don Home's a good uh, comparison, actually. Um, so we don't, we don't really do the okay, audio log. It's a walking game. simulator, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we don't actually do linear, the linear audio log thing they do in, in Don Home. Um, almost, you know, all of our uh, narrative theming stuff comes across, like, all the a little other, all the other stuff in Gone Home, just the little sound bits, um, you know, like you know the bits, the little pieces of side information you figure out about the family members in Gone Home. Gotcha. Um, apart from the audio logs, but just imagine Gone Home with no locked doors and no audio logs. Okay. And 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 angry raccoons. And angry raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> the angriest of raccoons. Okay. <laughs> All right, that makes sense. So it's possible to kind of run around. It's possible to run across that same information, but everything kind of goal, uh, everything's goal is to build this narrative out of multiple pieces. So eventually, when you kind of step back, you'll see kind of what the ranger's dealing with, what's what's going on, and and why he's doing this or or she's doing this. Yeah, totally. And um, you know that discovery process is a big part of uh, what we hope is the appeal of the game. You know, we don't we don't tell you. Even, even like the game mechanics of how most of the objects work uh, at the very beginning. And, you know, like in true roguelike fashion, you go out there and you, you encounter a new object and you bump it and you get a little piece of text and, and then you see how the object behaves and, you're, and you figure out, you know, oh, this thing hurts me or this thing helps me or maybe it does both based on circumstances. And um, you sort of accrue, you fill out this book of, of secrets. We actually have a UI component called Book of Secrets and Every time you encounter something new, it, it adds a little entry. So you get this idea, this feeling of progression where you're kind of collecting knowledge about how to play the game from a, a gameplay perspective. But then also, we're, while, we're, while we were teaching you that, we're giving you a little blurb of the narrative. So even a player who, who isn't paying attention to all the text and has been playing for hours uh, um, and just been concentrating on learning how the objects work from a, from a gameplay perspective, um, the hope is eventually, you know, they start doing that and then, you know, the fifth or sixth or twentieth time they bump, you know, whatever, this certain tree, they, they notice the text and it catches their eye and they're like, oh, huh. Um, so we give, we give you plenty of chances to sort of like, 
uh, get saturated in the world and, and pick up all these little narrative tidbits and put them together. So you're never at risk of losing anything. That's that's kind of fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the Book of Secrets does, never goes away. I mean, you, you, you fill that out um, throughout the game. and So, so every time you, you play, you're adding to that Book of Secrets. It's not like yeah. you what you learned in one playthrough disappears after you die and start a new playthrough. Right, exactly, okay. and and it's it's there as a reference. Cause, so a lot of the um, a lot of the entries in the book of secrets are crafting recipes. Um, so a lot of times, the first time you you craft something, it's totally by accident. You'll throw something at something else, and it'll go and turn into a third thing. You're like, whoa, what is that? What just happened? And you open up your book of secrets, and now you have a recipe for what you just made. Hmm. Uh, and uh, there are other ways you can you can find those things out. Uh, one of the uh, the NPCs who we really even haven't talked about much. Um, one of the gifts they'll give you is our uh, entries in the Book of Secrets. So, you know, if you do something nice with an NPC, they might tell you how to craft, you know, an axe. Um, and you, you go, oh, cool, I'm going to have to go out and try that in the forest. So uh, this may be something that you're not divulging, and if you aren't, then we'll just cut this question out, because... Uh, um, is there an outside narrative? Is, is is the ranger that you're playing the same ranger every time because the, the Book of Secrets is staying persistent? Or does the game kind of acknowledge that you're actually playing a different person each time? Or are you playing a different person each time? So you're definitely playing a different person each time. Okay. Uh, when you die, you die. Um, and so it's not Groundhog's Day for this poor ranger. <laughs> Right, exactly. Okay. Um, so, so it's actually you know when you when you first start the game, you sort of um, you unlock this house. The the and after the first mission, the uh, mayor uh, gives you a house to live in, and you you go in there, and there's already a bunch of furniture and stuff in there from the previous ranger. And um, so from then on, as you play, every time you play and then die, you come back as the next ranger, and you're basically this town always has a ranger that goes out and rescues kids and that's that's the ranger's job and so you basically play the line of rangers um doing that job for the town gotcha okay is there again more kind of weird deep dives is there a point where the mayor sees the and this might not be in the game but just let me know is there a point where like the mayor sees kind of that book of secrets kind of rip here and he just kind of shakes his head like oh man we lost another one and then kind of another ranger saunters in and he's like all right do better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the uh, there are references to the fact that there's a line of rangers, um, not just in the mayor's dialogue, but some of the uh, other NPCs. Um, I think some of the char- one of the characters when you first meet them, they say, "Oh, you're back." Wait, and then like looks closely, and I was like, "Oh, that's not you. Uh, I thought you were someone else." And like, there's just there's just you know, kind of like it's not very. Uh, uh, obvious, but there's these subtle signs that that the NPCs kind of notice this this train of rangers, um, and they kind of it seems almost they're callous about it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of yeah, not super sentimental. Don't tell me your name. Um, You're not going to be here long enough for me to care. Just go rescue kids. Yeah, there's 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 a certain amount of that going on. Gotcha. So. How much Robert Frost can we expect to experience in The Road Not Taken? Um, as much or as, as little as you want to experience. Um, so I think that <laughs> the actual, um, I, if you're talking about the actual contents of the poem, um, they are hidden away somewhere in the game. And so if you want, you can read the poem in kind of a weird way. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's a, you know, it's just really the kind of higher level, higher content concept thematic um, approach, which, you know, if you don't want to, you don't have to think about it at all. You can just play the play the game and solve the puzzles. Sure. Cool. Very cool. That's awesome. Robert Frost in there, he's, you know, hanging out. I, he approves I, of the Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't really approve of a whole lot of stuff. He was kind of a mean guy. Sorry, he, you know, anyway. like, like, Roadless travels and, and, and birch trees. It's, it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, this is one of the first games that you guys are bringing to consoles, right? Very first, yeah. 
Um, so you've done a lot of work in the, the kind of web space and the, the mobile space. What has it been like working on um, the, the PS4 and the, the PlayStation Vita? Uh, interesting. It's been interesting. Um, so it's, it's not at all how we typically develop games, um, not just platform-wise, but um, um, we are, we're used to, especially with the browser games, um, putting something out um, without all the features we have in mind for it and, and iterating on it, basically. You know, when you have a game on the web browser, you can put it out and then, like, you know, update something the next week and then the next week. And, and, and we do that a lot. Most of, A lot of our games have been essentially iterated in the wild for six months to a year after launch um, until it finally, you know, achieves its final form. And then we're like, okay, awesome, we nailed it. Um, which is, you know, a great way, we think, to develop games because, um, you know, you can sort of, uh, ramp up your marketing and, and everything as your game becomes more, you know, suited to the market and you figure out how, how to monetize things. And, uh, you can make a better game because you can have real players, you know, playing the game and giving feedback and, and we can see what's going on. Um, versus the traditional console development cycle, um, you know, has this big crescendo where, you know, you work, you work, you work, you set a date, you, you work, 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 and then release it at that date. And you have this big marketing push and you try and make a lot of sales on that. And, and then after it's out, um, you know, you can make, you can add DLC and you can do patches and stuff to fix things. But in general, the amount of iteration you do on a console game is way less. Um, so I would say traditionally Sprite Fox is used to not being overly concerned with getting something right on the first try. Right? And um, so I think the biggest adjustment for this Console game is, is, you know, the, is, is that difference, you know, being like, oh yeah, you know, we really gotta test the heck out of this and, and, uh, and we really have to hit this date and we have to, you know, we have to have this big marketing push to coincide with the release. Um, and so it's not, it's not totally foreign to us because, you know, we have, you know, almost everyone on the team has worked in console games at one point. So we're, you know, as individuals, we're kind of uh, familiar with that 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 development uh, time frame, but um, as a company, it's not something we're used to. Um, you know, but I think we've, we've done pretty well, and um, uh, we're pretty happy with it. We're you know we're 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 in a good place right now. Um, you know, with our date and everything, and and we're pretty happy with how everything came together. But um, it definitely definitely felt different um, than previous games. You know, for a while we had all eleven members of Sprytebox cranking on Road Not Taken, which is kind of unheard of for us. Typically, even your release, our, our games kind of top out at maybe three or four developers, and everyone else is on different projects. So uh, that was kind of unique. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so it kind of sounds like the the way that you guys traditionally do development uh, would be similar to something like uh, Steam's Greenlight. Have you thought about uh, bringing it to PC, or is it uh, is it solely a kind of a PlayStation property? Oh, oh yeah, uh, it is. It's going to be launching on Steam. Uh, okay. Uh, at the same date, so it'll be a simultaneous launch with PS4 and uh, Steam, both PC and Mac. So we're doing that. We're not doing the Greenlight thing. We already have you know, a spot on, on Steam and everything. Um, so it'll be releasing on both, and then PS Vita will come out uh, later on during the fall. Okay. Very cool. That is very cool. Excellent. Okay. Like both communities being embraced there. Yeah. Well, Brian, do you have any more questions? No, I think we're, uh, I think we're good to go to the end game. All right. All right, so uh, kind of like uh, we let you know a little bit before, beforehand, we like to end our interviews with a, a little bit of a questionnaire. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, six or seven questions. Uh, it does get harder as it goes along. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, prepare yourself for weird references because those will come too. Uh, but uh, first question, um, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Protagonist? Protagonist. Uh-huh. Good guy, anti-hero, person you play. Sure. Um, let's see. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, probably Super Meat Boy. Uh, okay. Cause he, he has my, he's my, has my favorite platforming controls of any, 
protagonist ever. Sure. Absolutely. So flipping that coin, who's your favorite antagonist? Uh, antagonist. Um, Dr. Fetus. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Um, no, um, this is... Um, so I, I'm going to try and remember this guy's name because it's kind of like some random... It was a bot in um, Unreal Tournament in like a campaign. I can't remember which one. I think his name was Zan or something. And he was this guy in his power armor and he would jump around and he was so hard. It took me like so long to beat him and he would always mock me as I was fighting him. It was just a really epic thing to finally beat him and it was just barely. Um, but that guy just stuck in my mind because I just hated him so much. Absolutely. So favorite in a hated sense. Yeah, no problem. That you know, generally that you can roll with that, with that uh, that kind of thing. Um, in, in, what would be your least favorite um, theme or trope in video games today? Uh, what would you like to kind of see go away? Uh, uh, theme or trope? Um, yeah, probably. Hmm. Not- not very comfortable with the sort of um, hyper-violent first-person shooters with, like, a, a white dude shooting a bunch of minorities. Probably that. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, so very uh, very kind of Far Cry 3-ish. <laughs> I'm not naming names, but... No problem. <laughs> That's okay. We can. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to worry about burning bridges. We'll light them on fire for you. No problem at all. Uh, fourth question, and we ask this um, to everybody... Um, if you could turn any other poem into a game, uh, what poem would it be and what type of game would it be? Any other poem into any a game? Poem. Yeah, you know, like you guys are using Robert Frost, for example. Um, you know, if you could, if you had another poem in mind, what kind of game would you make with it? Um, let's see. I would probably pick, like, one of those, like, E. Cumming poems where with a bunch of crazy white space and, and pronunciation, it's really hard to interpret. Um, just because... That sounds like a really weird and fun challenge from a game design perspective. Um, so, yeah. Nice. Okay. All right. I get down with that. That lets you kind of be free with stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Um, next question. Uh, you're you're currently living the dream. You're creating video games. Uh, you're kind of a game designer in your own game, kind of putting something out there. Um, is If you were given the chance, is there another dream um, you would uh, take the moment to live? Uh, take a moment or just or switch with? Yeah, well, you and know, not necessarily switch with because nobody wants to give this up. But, uh, you know, like if, if, if something came across and you were just like, hey, I'm going to go try this, is there anything else you'd love to try? Uh, yeah. Well, I always wanted to <laughs> – this is weird. I always wanted to be, try being a truck driver because um, I really like road tripping. And um, and I, I, this is like a childhood thing. So, I, you know, I always just thought like, oh, man, those guys get paid to road trip. Um, which is ridiculous, obviously. I'm sure it's a very hard job and not, not fun like a road trip, maybe. Um, so I'll probably get sick of it in like, I don't know, an hour or two. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, scream, uh, we got a bit, I, great big you know, long, long, <laughs> Yeah, totally. Gotcha. Get to pull the horn thing and yeah. Totally. Yep. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Thanks guys. Here's your truck back. <laughs> No problem. All right, this la- uh, the the second to last question, our penultimate, um, requires a little bit of a lead up. Um, have you seen Escape from L.A.? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. So you know, at the end, Snake comes into possession of that little, you know, the the little button that controls all the satellites that could EMP the world. Right. Yeah. You get so. yeah. exactly. You get slipped a note tonight that that's going down tomorrow. What game would you play tonight? Oh man, what time tonight? Like, how many hours do I have? You, uh, you've got, you've it's got not going to happen game. until you finish playing the game. Oh, okay, that's a new. Until I finish playing the game? Yeah, that seems like a loophole. Couldn't I just keep playing the game? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's got you, Jonathan. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, I'm still trying to keep the system. Um, let's see. Um, I wanted to say Spelunky because I really love the procedural generation in that, and I love brutal platformers. But I think like I'd be really stressed out already about the EMP in the world, so that would <laughs> that would throw my game off and just make me feel really horrible. Um, so I think I'd, I'd go for something like I'd probably play some Minecraft, just chill out for a while, and you know, build a hut, sow some fields, and maybe it'd be good practice for when all the electric 
electronics are down, I might actually have to farm stuff and punch, you punch know, trees. trees <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I've learned how to, you know, put sticks together and make a wood axe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm an amazing survivalist from playing Minecraft. I mean, I've never tried to survive alone in the woods, but I feel like that that, that knowledge will transfer perfectly into the real world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've played that, I've played Don't Starve, and I've seen the Mythbusters episode where you could do anything with duct tape. I am I'm yep. ready to go. Yeah, we're good. Yep. Uh, final question, um, and this one gets a bit deep. Um, at the end of our lives, uh, when we come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and Toad is there with the Book of Our Deeds, uh, what do you want him to say to you before he lets you in? Before he lets me in? Yeah. Um, um, man, that is deep. Um, uh, I think Toad would say, um, uh, and he'd probably be disappointed with how few Nintendo games I I got really got into, but um, maybe <laughs> just shaking his head as you walk up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I hope hopefully um, he he has something to say. Like you know, I look at a lot of these, and yours is at least somewhat interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Deviate from the norm a bit, I guess. I don't know. That's all I got. I like that. Hey, that works. It, it yeah. wasn't the stock answer of, uh, you know, your afterlife is in another kingdom. So oh, I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that is it. That is it. You've passed the end game. Um, you have our, our undying respect. And uh, and that's that's about it. So, you know, may you enjoy uh, Minecraft until the EMP comes. Awesome. Thanks for the heads up, too, on that. <laughs> And just remember, don't stop playing. Uh, or we all, we're all sent back to the Dark Age. Uh, well, Pat, thank you so much for, uh, for sitting down and talking to us about The Road Not Taken. If you could just send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more information about The Road Not Taken. Yeah, uh, you can check, us, check out uh, Road Not Taken and all of our games at uh, SpriteBox.com or follow us on Twitter at, at SpriteBox. All right. Very good. Thank you once again, and good luck with uh, finishing up the game. Hope everything goes well. Yeah, thanks, guys.